the movement of which we speak, according to the expression of Cicero, which we have cited, is a perpetual or continued movement. We may, by a word or an isolated act, give a movement to the soul, inclining it immediately to a certain object, to perform an act of will, but this movement is only a shock. By the same means we may repeat, multiply these shocks, they are fractions of eloquence, eloquent moments, these are not eloquence, they are neither the oratorical art nor the oratorical genius, eloquence consists in maintaining movement by the development of a thought or a proof, in perpetuating it according to the expression of Cicero, to perpetuate this movement, is not an artifice unworthy of the candor of truth, as if it restrained the hero from taking breath, from pausing, from knowing where he is. The violation of the law of candor, if there be any, begins with the choice of the elements, if we may not dispose of them oratorically, we should not have chosen elements which are themselves oratorical. The first error was that we did not address ourselves exclusively to reason. We have examined this point, and shall not now return to it. If in proportion as we move the soul we enlighten reason, if light increases with heat, if at each spot, where the hearer pauses, he can satisfy himself as to the way he has taken, and justify to his reason, the emotion of his soul. How is the procedure of the orator to be blamed on the score of rectitude? One truth was made to move the soul, the soul was made to be moved by truth. May we say that the truth which is supremely amiable has been received when it has not been loved, it is in its bosom that the contemplative faculty of the soul is hmonized and interfused with the affective or emotional FLT. The first rule of oratorical movement is, we have tenuity. This rule is negative, it only requires that the movement be not interrupted, and why should it be interrupted it is necessary that the movement be continuous, because whatever interrupts it, not only does that, but reacts destructively on the effect already produced, that it may be continuous, it is necessary, that what loathes an argument or an idea, though entirely different from the preceding argument or idea should be suited to sustain the impression which the hearer has received from what has preceded, and not to give his soul a wholly different direction. Thus the continuity is broken, when after having interested the soul the orator addresses reason, intending to return to the soul afterwards. It is also broken by every digression, every excursion from the subject, which induces forgetfulness of the orator's design, and in this case, the intervening interest so far from excusing the orator, makes his fault more manifest. Even when these faults find no place in the discourse, TL continuity of the movement may be broken by yet another means, namely, multiplied subdivisions. Here is the condemnation of those symmetrical plans which have so invade the pulpit. I question whether the traditional form of Imons, stiff and cold schematism, has as much tended to instruction, as it has injured eloquence. On this account we owe thanks to those who have done honor to the homily, in which there is always a kind of continuity arising, according to the nature of the text from the connection of the ideas or the sequence of facts. Fenelon, in his second dialogue on eloquence, opposes divisions altogether as presenting only an apparent order, as desiccating and forcing the discourse, as dividing it into three or four discourses. The great orators of antiquity and the fathers of the church did not divide their discourses, in which, nevertheless, they distinguished what ought to be distinguished, and in which also the law of progression was observed. Let us however explain, we must not confound two different things, division itself, and the announcements which disclose it. Manifestly, it is the first of these things we have to do with, division in itself. Now does division break the continuity of the movement? We cannot here take division for every kind of division, for then we should have to renounce movement, all discourse being necessarily divided into parts more or less distinct, and disposition implying a decomposition. To what is Fenelon opposed? It cannot be to division in this general sense, 
but, on the one hand, to formal division announced beforehand, and on the other, to a too artificial and too extended decomposition. I think he was opposed, particularly, to a subdivision founded on unimportant distinctions, to that perpetual cutting up of ideas which suspends at every moment the progress of the discourse, and demands at every moment unseasonable halts, a method to be distrusted from its being too convenient. It may be necessary to a certain extent, but if carried to excess, it becomes a pillow to idleness, a substitute for meditation. When truly one has a series of little discourses, instead of one compact discourse, it is not a beautifully veined marble, but a rough mosaic. Fenelon spoke of this the more seasonably inasmuch as this method was strongly accredited. In the most beautiful sermons of Massillon, after removing the cuticle from the discourse, we see beneath little fresh invention, everything lies in that superficial network, as we have said that disposition, as far as it is logical, is already oratorical, we likewise say, that as far as movement is continuous, it is already progressive, it resembles the fall of heavy bodies, with this difference, that we speak not of acceleration of the movement but of its intensity. Uninterrupted movement is always becoming stronger, but progress in movement has also something peculiar and special, as might be said of a body which, independently of the first impulse, and of the tendency which maintains and, so to speak, renews it, receives incessantly an additional impulse, as progress in physical movement will at length displace the greatest masses, overcome the greatest resistance, so in respect of the increase of intensity, oratorical progress, it affects the soul more powerfully penetrates it more deeply, the law of oratorical discourse is in this respect the same with that of the drama, let us keep the drama always in view, with its plan always thickening, its incidence and its catastrophe, omnia festinant ad eventum f1, but let us pass from the general idea of oratorical progress to its different forms, and let us first remember that progress is made when we pass from that which affects essentially the understanding only, to that which acts upon the will. Not that each one of these faculties is not, in its own sphere, as perfect as the other, but, in life, it is not the understanding which complements the will, it is the will which complements the understanding. Thought in general, if not each particular thought, would resolve itself into action, in all his faculties man tends to action, for cultus comes from fasir, it is the power of doing. All real movement has its quantity, it is neither extent nor velocity only, it is the degree itself of its reality, of which velocity and amplitude are only the result and the sign, it is intensity, now, intensity, the degree of reality, has its direct measure only in the energy of the cause, in force, on the other hand, if force is its own measure, it is also proportioned, it is proportioned at least to its actual energy, to the resistance which it has to overcome. Movement is the resultant of the excess of power over resistance. There is then, in all discourse, strictly, a progress, a progress from theory to practice, from idea to action. We violate this rule when we give explanation of a duty, after having presented its motives. The difference is here to be seen, between logical and oratorical disposition. The two kinds, as before indicated, are equally logical, and even in life, the explanation of a duty, or directions as to the manner of performing it, come very naturally after enforcements of it, but this would be perilous in a public discourse, the optics of a public and solemn discourse are not the same with those of a conversation too, again, in a series of ideas relating wholly to the understanding, there is a progress from the abstract to the concrete, 
from a priori to a posteriori, because realize ideas or facts, though not intrinsically better as proof, act more directly on man, and sentiment is nearer the will than intelligence. 3. Among arguments of the same nature, whether addressed to the understanding or the will, we must advance from the weaker to the stronger. But what are the weaker and what the stronger? If the question relates to proofs for the mind, the simplest and most evident are the strongest, and presumptions are less strong than proofs. If the question relates to facts, progress is from the less to the more I important. If it relates to motives, the question is difficult. What are the weakest? What are the strongest? Are the most elevated the strongest? If so, Baudelaire was wrong. When entreating of impurity he considered it first as a sign, then as the principle of reprobation a singular idea of Cicero. He advises us to throw into the mid of a discourse the arguments on which we place the least value, that in company with the others they may escape detection. A question presents itself. When a motive or argument is incomparably stronger than all others, when it is supreme and decisive, why pass through many others to arrive at that is it thus that we do in occasional and accidental discourses perhaps not ordinarily, but perhaps we should do thus if these discourses were somewhat prepared, and were not accidental, in the majority of cases, we are confident that this method would be justified by the result, there are cases, doubtless in which public discourse itself would be acceptable, if it mentioned secondary arguments only in the way of pretermission, or even did not mention them at all, but in general, and especially in pulpit discourse, the point of view is different from that of occasional or accidental discourse in common life, the situation of the orator and his hearers is a tranquil one, the subject is not of momentary interest, a question suddenly started, a measure to be taken immediately, not more is it an excited passion in unison with which the orator is to put himself, without intending to maintain that oratorical discourse is a poetical representation of real discourse, any more than a letter is an imitation of a familiar allocution or conversation, we may yet say that it is somewhat ideal, it is indeed really tire, but an extraordinary reality, a point of view not met with, but given. The auditory is not a known individual, it is a collection of individualities whose mean we must calculate, a new being, a being sui generis, it is not a chance meeting, but a solemn assemblage. Finally, it relates to an act, isolated and regarded as single, in which everything is to be said, and to which we are not to return. It is said that, in general, there is but one reason which is decisive. It is true that when a man is to give an account of an action which he has done or is about to do, we may be sure that one of the reasons which he gives is the strongest, that which has determined him, that which he has given to himself. The others are for those to whom he may wish to commend the resolution he has taken. Why does he not express this first one or other? Why does he not express only this? For it is very certain that if he begins with the strongest argument the others will be neither felt nor listened to. But the orator must give all the reasons. First, because he does not know which is the decisive reason, and because the same reason is not decisive with everyone, nor with each one always. Next, because truth should employ all it means. And finally, because it is useful to the mind to discern light from every point of the horizon. For it is not with truth as it is with the sun. We have not, however, the mistaken idea that quantity, in this case, may serve instead of quality. We do not regard conviction as a kind of intellectual oppression in which the mind is overwhelmed by the mass of arguments and the multitude of words. Finally, the more suited an argument is to move and start early the soul, the greater the necessity for preparing the way before it is presented. The soul taken at unawares is disconcerted by vehement and abrupt challenges. It is rather confounded than conquered. 
it cannot react except from an appropriate disposition imparted by what has gone before for, where, in accordance with the rule of progress or ascending movement, are we to place the solution of doubts and the answer to objections, should they be introduced before or after positive arguments, we cannot meet this question by the same reply in all cases, let us, however, rest assured beforehand, that what logic suggests, physiology will approve and reciprocate, I think a distinction should be made, we may place before the positive proof, the examination of the prejudices, presumptions, equivocal expressions, confessions, logomarchies, by which the question is obscured, this, if we may so speak, is to clear the ground on which we are to build, the refutation of objections, properly so called, is a different matter, if it does not constitute the entire discourse, it must come after the proof, but it is necessary that it should be clear, quick, rapid, that it should be turned into proof, that it should be an application of the positive arguments which was first presented, in discourses composed of parallel parts, there may be progress, provided the parts follow in the order of their eye importance, but this progress cannot be compared with that of a discourse in which, instead of two or three lateral parts, everything is successive, in which there are not two or three discourses, in some sort, but one only, one single train of ideas, the first of which produces the second, then the third, and so on even to the end, so that the last pages share the strength of all which precede them, and the weight of the whole discourse rests upon the last paragraph. The progress here is as the accelerated fall of heavy bodies, not an arithmetical but a geometrical progression. Among experienced preachers we find few examples of exordiums altogether defective. We find few good ones among preachers at their beginning. We hence naturally infer that there is in this part of the discourse something of special delicacy, but nothing which demands peculiar faculties. It is with exordiums as with nice and exact mechanical operations, in which the workman finally succeeds but not without having broken more than one of the instruments which he uses. We shall be able to judge of it from what we have to say concerning the nature and purpose of the exordium. Is the exordium necessary, natural, or is it but a factitious and conventional ornament? I remark that nature itself teaches us the art of preparation and gradation. We approve of it in everything, and we connect with it the idea of beauty. The beauty of the skies would be diminished by the absence of twilight and dawn. I remark in the second place, that even in accidental conversation, no one begins ex abrupio, if he is free to do otherwise, if we do begin ex abrupio, if we hurry into the midst of things, rapid in medias res, if we enter the apartment by the window, it is when some circumstance or some word pronounced by another, has placed the auditory at the point of view at which we would have it, this is itself an exordium, and the exception confirms the rule. But apart from such cases, in which the preparation has been given, everyone, without thinking of it, feels that the auditory should be prepared. There is a case in which this necessity is distinctly recognized. This is when some explanation is necessary to the understanding of the subject. When, for example, the passage of the Bible on which we are to speak, is intelligible only from its connection with what precedes it. But there are other reasons independently and in the absence of this. In the first place, there is a certain degree of weight in the mere fact of beginning a discourse with an exordium. We appear to have more regard for our subject, when we do not approach it immediately, abruptly. There is no cause in the compass of nature which pours itself into effect all at once, and suddenly vanishes. In like manner, nature hath disguised under genteely beginnings. The progress of more violent commotions, it is useful to compose the hero for a moment, lest he enter into the depth of the subject with a wandering mind, now we can do this only by means of ideas in near relation to the subject, 
but ordinarily, something more is required. The orator should seek to put his hearer in a state of mind in relation to his subject, similar to his own. It is with the orator and the hearer as with instruments which are tuned before a concert. The reason for an exordium, says Quintilian, can be no other than to dispose the auditory to be favorable to us. In the other parts of the discourse, this, as most authors agree, is accomplished by making them benevolent, attentive and do die, not but that a due regard should be paid to these three particulars, during the whole of the action, but in the exordium they are of singular moment, as by it we so far gain an ascendant over the mind of the judge, as to be able to proceed farther, the exordium, then, is a discourse before the principal discourse, the object of which, in all cases, is to render the hearers benevolent, attentive, teachable, by which I understand disposed to receive instruction, and, in certain cases, to prepare them to understand well what is afterwards to be spoken. We remark that it is not the personal interest of the orator, but much rather that of the hearer, which is here to be considered, and hence the word benevolent is not the most appropriate, but, in no case is a choice of the idea in the exordium arbitrary, it is less so than a prelude or an overture in music, not more so than a preface to a book. What is to be desired under the name of an exordium, is not a delay or an interval more or less well occupied, but an introduction, a preparation, the excitement of an expectation as distinct and vivid as possible. In our judgment, the truest exordium is that which has conducted the orator himself to his subject, or which is as the height to which the orator ascends after treating his subject, in order to contemplate it as a whole. After what we have said, it is not difficult to discover the rules of the exordium. If we pause long on a part which fills so small a space, let it be remembered that no part is either more difficult or in more danger of mismanagement. The first rule for the exordium is confounded with the definition itself, in proportion to its proximity to it. When an exordium is not supplied, or replaced by an explication of the text or context, it should be drawn from an idea in immediate contact with the subject, without forming a part of it. These two things are self-evident. If the idea forms a part of the subject, it is no more an introduction or an exordium. If the idea has no relation to the subject, it is no more an exordium. It is a ridiculous artwork. But if the first part of the rule cannot be explained, it is otherwise with the second. It does not relate to an idea in the neighborhood of that of the discourse, but to an idea in immediate contact with it, between which and that of the discourse there is no place for another idea, so that the first step we take out of that idea, transports us into our subject. If we are not bound to this condition, we may allow ourselves, under the name of an exordium, all manner of divergence, and take the liberty to start with a digression. We may be assured that an exordium is not a good one, if it does not appear necessary, if it does not appear incorporated with the discourse, if it gives the idea of a foreign discourse stitched more or less ingeniously to the principal discourse, if it leaves the hearer at liberty to think some other exordium preferable, or as good. The exordium is good only insofar as it has been suggested by the subject, as it is born of the subject, as it is united to it as intimately as the flower is united to the stem. Penetus ex ye causa, quaseterna gata, eflorus gaches says, the exordium should be excluded from the work, if one might retrench it without doing the discourse an injury, in all its rigor, the rule would require the exordium to be incommutable, that is to say, that it should suit but one subject, for whenever it should not be incommutable. There would seem to be a place between the exordium and the discourse for an intermediate idea. We must at least observe the rule as constantly and closely as possible. 
but it certainly is not absolute, and if your exordium endures the test which I have indicated, if it appears necessary, if the idea of another exordium does not occur any more than that of another discourse in connection with this exordium, we should have no scruples, no fear of censure, who would condemn Sorinus exordium to his sermon on the necessity of universal obedience but it is doubtless very well to admit such exordiums only as exceptions, otherwise we shall become vague and trivial and make introductions which introduce nothing, it should be borrowed in a manner from the main stress of our pleading, whereby it will appear that it is not only not common, and not applicable to other causes, but shoots, and, as it were, flourishes from the cause which is your immediate business the orators of antiquity, having special regard to personal interest in the exordium, which, consequently, was less closely united to the subject, and was less integrant with the discourse, cared little to avoid commutable exordiums. Cicero, Demosthenes himself, had transferable exordiums, in general, we prefer exordiums more closely united to our subject and our design, though the rule we have given should reduce the number of the subjects or motives proper for exordiums, it would not be less excellent, but so far from reducing, it multiplies the number, by neglecting it, we may think that we set ourselves at large, on the contrary, we confine ourselves in a strait, an introduction, perhaps, might be more easily formed but there would be little variety in choice, it is by adhering closely to the subject, that subjects are multiplied, we may conclude, from the following indication of some of the subjects of the exordium, that matter for exordiums is not wanting to an attentive mind, but we remark that in indicating here some of the chief sources of exordiums, we do not undertake to give a catalogue of commonplaces, from which one may choose at random, there is always one exordium which is better than any other, and it is that on which the true orator ordinarily falls first, there is then, a the idea of the genus, of which the subject is a species, this, in some sort, puts the subject in its place, or marks the place of the subject, this is the most common kind the text often furnishes us with an exordium in which we proceed from the idea of the species to that of the genus be the approximation of the subject treated to another, in order to indicate the resemblance or the difference, fc opposition between the idea of the subject and some opinion or maxim prevalent in the world, jd commendation of the subject, that is to say, showing its importance and excellence, the reasons for choosing it, sometimes even apologizing for the subject e calling to mind a fact by which the subject is individualized, or from which it springs he will give the portal of his harang a graceful appearance, and make the entrance to his cause as neat and splendid as the importance of it will permits g relation to the circumstances of the orator himself, this is more delicate, it is an exception, in freedoms of this kind the execution is the solution of the knot, h an exordium has sometimes the form of a prayer, but this is a form and not an argument or idea of the exordium, this prayer in its essential ideas, will enter into some one of the categories which we have indicated i finally, there is the text and the context, that is to say, the explication either of the words themselves of the text, or of the connection of these words with those which precede, Theremin thinks that the text presents matter for the exordium already at hand, and always suitable, we have only to draw the idea of the subject from the text, by attaching to it a short explanation of the circumstances in which the words of the text were spoken, and which give them a particular application, f without wishing to restrict the preacher to this single kind of exordium, we also think the text in the context, in other words the nexus, always offer us the matter of a good exordium, an exordium with which we should always be content. We only subjoin that we must not create the nexus, that we must not present a problematical nexus, or ascend too high or too laboriously, or by too short steps, the borders of that stream of discourse, of which our text, so to speak, 
forms one of the waves too. When we said that the exordium should be drawn from an idea not remote from the subject, we gave our second rule, which, of course, was comprised in the first. It must, in truth, be one idea, one single idea. There are two ways of violating this rule, one by descending from a more remote idea toward that which is in immediate contact with that of the subject, the other by making two, in some respects, parallel exordiums, that is to say, an exordium composed of two ideas, one of which is not derived from the other, there was a time when the exordium was invariably double, formally, says Gaethje's, two exordiums were made, one to lead to the invocation, the other to prepare the way to the division, I add, that the first seems to have had scarcely any other purpose than of getting rid of the text, 3, there may be unity in the exordium without simplicity, it is necessary that it be simple, that it do not reason or prove too much, that it restrict itself to the exhibition of one known truth, that it relate to what the hearer already knows, or admits, in the first steps by which we approach the subject, everything should be easy fiv, for the same reason it is necessary that the development of the idea of the exordium should be brief, by detaining the people long on the threshold of a house into which we have promised them entrance, we give them good reason to be impatient, we present additional rules relating, not as did the others, to the contents or substance of the exordium, but to its character, are the exordium which is intended to prepare, to compose the hearers, suppose them not prepared, composed, in general then, we cannot appeal in the exordium to powers which have not yet been awakened, vehemence, splendor of style, solemnity, are not in season yet, and we must not exhaust ourselves at the outset, this rule, however, is not absolute, we find here the plan of three or four sermons, and three of these, at least, after the author had already announced the object and division of his own one, in some eases the hearers are already excited before the discourse begins, and the orator need not put himself below their level, let him now venture too, it is one mode, also, of preparing the hearer to impress him with the solemnity, the grandeur of the subject, it may be important, in certain cases, to deprive of authority the trivial or worldly ideas which the subject may awaken, it is the privilege of talent and the fruit of study and experience, to know when to venture and when to abstain, it cannot be allowed to teaching, strictly so called, to set aside talent or anticipate the dictates of experience too, it is a rule which seems to be implied in the former, that exordiums be characterized by modesty, the ancient rhetoricians insisted on this, nay, even recommend timidity. tie, there is a passage in Cicero which shows forcibly the humble position which the ancient orator took in the presence of his auditory, if you insist that I should speak my opinion of the matter without reserve, as all of you are my intimate friends, I will now for the first time declare what I have hitherto thought ought to be concealed, even the best speakers, they who speak with the greatest ease and grace, are, in my opinion, guilty of too much assurance, though really modest, unless they appear timid, and betray some confusion, in the commencement of their speech, for the more a man excels in speaking, he is the more sensible of its difficulty, he is under the greater concern for the event, and to answer the expectation of the public, as for him who discovers no sense of shame, as is too commonly the case, such a man I think deserves not reproof only, but punishment, for I have often observed in you what I have experienced in myself, I grow pale at the beginning of a speech, and feel a tremor in every part of my frame, but when a young man, one was so intimidated, that, I speak it with the highest sense of gratitude, Q Maximus adjourned the court, when he perceived me thus oppressed and disabled with, concern, we prescribe the same rule but not as a rule of art, 
Surpassing Cicero, who doubtless would commend modesty in every discourse, we would not have the exordium but the orator modest, we even approve of his being timid, but with this distinction of Marmontel, that he be timid for himself and bold for his cause, J the first sort of timidity is becoming, the second disparages the orator, and destroys beforehand the effect of his arguments, now, as we may be at the same time timid and bold, the boldness of the sincere Christian must terminate in bearing him above the timidity of the man three, finally, I require in the exordium clearness, justness, correctness, purity of language arid style, in a word, I may say perfection, in respect to ideas and style, the exordium in truth, cannot be too faultless, the orator's position is critical now, for the hearer, not being as yet warmly interested, can give his whole attention to details, and the orator, as yet, has been able to do nothing to obtain indulgence even to his slightest faults, no part of the discourse, says Gaiches, needs as much exactness, or as much address, as the exordium, none being heard with more coolness and none more severely judged, he may be well assured that the attentive hearer will not forgive those faults in the exordium which he will pardon in the body of the discourse, after we have communicated to him our own warmth, all incorrectness, redundance, exaggeration, want of precision, obscurity, he will remark, and nothing will he forgive, now, this first impression is often decisive and always important, the success of a discourse, says Gaethjes again, often depends on the beginning, from first impressions, whether good or bad, we do not easily recover, it is more important that it be free from faults than adorned with beauty, as to the maxims which they laid down with regard to exordiums and narratives, these, ac according to them, are to obtain alike in all speeches, Boilo has said, that one faultless sonnet is of itself worth as much as a long poem, if we are inclined to say as much of a faultless exordium, but yet we may not add that a this fortunate phoenix remains to be found, there are exordiums which are at the same time beautiful and faultless, some persons have thought, on account of the importance and the difficulty of the exordium, that we should not employ our thoughts upon this part of the composition until all the rest has been written, this is not our opinion, this mode of proceeding is not natural, a good exordium prepares the orator as well as the hearer, it is not with this as with a preface, a preface is less essential to a book, which, indeed, may dispense with one, we would rather adopt the idea of Cicero, having weighed all these particulars, I proceed to consider what I am to say in the first place, and how I shall set out, for, whenever I wished to consider the introduction first, nothing occurred to me but what was dry, trifling, trite, and common, Cicero afterwards tells us on what his mode of proceeding was founded, your preamble is not to be sought from abroad, nor elsewhere, but must be taken from the very essence of your cause, for this purpose, after you have felt and surveyed the whole of your cause, after you have found out and prepared all its topics, you are to consider which of them you are to employ in the preamble, it is thus easily found out, as to the introduction of a speech, it ought always to have accuracy, acuteness, sentiment and propriety of expression, for the first judgment, and as it were, prejudice in favor of a speech, arises from its setting out, which ought instantly to soothe and entice the hearer.